The government is not in a hurry. What? What do you mean? I mean, we got to fix that. Oh, no. It's going to take years. Why? I don't get it. As Latinas become the fastest growing voting group in America, they're having a real impact on American politics. Today, our guest, Representative Maria Salazar, explains why. A current member of Congress from Florida's 27th District, a journalist for over 35 years, she's right in the middle of it all and is reminding America what democracy is all about. Here from Ballard Studios, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the same party. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Maria Salazar has been on the front lines of news-breaking events for a very long time. First as a member of every major Spanish-language television network, and now mm-hmm. as a representative from Florida, uh, where she's known for her efforts on the economy, immigration, and the protection of democracy. The daughter of Cuban exiles, Salazar is a graduate of the University of Miami, of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School, And she hails, of course, from one of America's greatest melting pots, Miami. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. The ultimate melting pot in the United States. And I'm the only Republican that holds a metropolitan area in the country. The rest are the Democrats. So I am very happy that I'm representing everyone, Dems, Republicans, (laughs) and Independents. It's great, great to have you with us. <laughs> That's South Florida for sure. Well, uh, Florida just experienced a, a major natural disaster with Hurricane Ian, and a lot of people are hurting down there. We know that traditionally Congress usually steps in and they assist in these type of situations. Can you give us a sense of whether you think uh, Congress will do that again uh, this time for the victims and the, those residents of Florida who've been affected by this natural disaster? Listen, I am very happy with, uh, and I have some some stats here that I wanted to share with you. We're very happy the way uh, Governor DeSantis hit, handled the situation. Because a few days before the disaster, we knew the intensity of this hurricane. He went to the feds and said, hey, I need to declare an emergency situation here. And, you know, that opened the floodgates for more federal money. Right now, as we speak, out of the 2.5 million people that did not have electricity in the last uh, four days, we've gone down to almost 80% of that. 80% of the people who did not have electricity now have it. So we're still around half a million people with, without any, any type of, but, but we're making any type of electricity, but we're making progress. Not only that, that unfortunately the death toll has risen to uh, almost 84, but we think that it's not going to be much more. I mean, DeSantis knows what he is doing. And Stuby, who's a very good friend of mine, and he's, a, he's one of the members of the Florida delegation, now, for what I hear from my staff, is putting together a new bill, clean bill, so when we go back to Congress, we can vote on giving more money to the state of Florida. I always look at the positive side. If you were in DR, or if you were in Cuba, or if you were anywhere else, it will take years for you to be able to regain what you had. In the United States, 
because of the American exceptionality, because of the fantastic system we have. We appreciate that, uh, understand that, of course, there are natural disasters that hit anyone, but we know how to recoup, step back on, and, and, and go back to live in the promised land. We did it with Andrew in 92. We're doing it with Ian now. Representative, I wish we could take this message right now and record it and share it with the rest of America. Because one of the things we, we seem to be missing in this country today is a sense of optimism about the the here and now, much less the future. And that's the kind of message that people need to hear because in a crisis, you really kind of get to, to find out very quickly, right, what we are made of and what leadership looks like. And I think we saw a lot of that on display in Florida under the worst of circumstance recently. And you have the first lady, of course, that you have the first lady of the state of Florida, Casey DeSantis, who she's leading efforts to raise money. And then you have all these organizations raising money. And I think that uh, Florida, another one of these websites uh, of raising money got $12 million. Where else do you see this? Right <laughs> now, the Cubans who suffered the same type of natural disaster <clears throat> called Ian went over the islands of Cuba before it hit uh, Punta Gorda and Fort Myers, those people are on the streets as we speak because five days after, six days after, they still do not have electricity or food or clothes or water or anything. So I always, what we need to do is something called having a point of comparison. Mm. When you know black, you recognize white right away. And that's what happens to me because I'm the daughter of political refugees. I'm in touch with the Cubans all the time. I see what's happening in Nicaragua, what's happening in Venezuela. Well, let's start with the Cuba, Cuba and DR, Dominican Republic. They, they, ha- they, they suffer the same wrath of Ian. Look, they're on the streets protesting. Here we are. I just told you, 80% of the people with no electricity, they got it. Oh, they lost everything, but they are going to recoup. That's it. No doubt about it, because we are in the United States. That is what we have to preserve, that American exceptionality. And that's what's in danger. Let's switch topics for a second, Uh, Representative. Let's talk about what's on the minds of everyone, at least in Washington, D.C., and increasingly around the country in the midterms. A New York Times poll came out recently talking about the shift in allegiance among Latinos uh, in America between the two parties. And uh, specifically, the Q poll, the Quinnipiac poll did the same. Basically looking at what is moving Latino voters. And on the one hand, you've got the phalanx of economic issues and the other social issues the number one issue is the economy, the state of the economy, and what it means to working class Latinos. Do you find uh, that that is still kind of driving this midterm election and that maybe it's a harbinger Bria, of, of where things are as the, as the Republican Party morphs into more of the party of the working class? That's just the tip of the iceberg, the economy. It's an accumulation. And I know that because I belong to that group. Mm. I am, uh, and not only that, as you said, I was on television for 35 years and those were my viewers. Some of them, them turned into voters in District 27, but I'm speaking on behalf of the whole Hispanic mosaic in this country. I know them very well most of them Central Americans and Mexicans. And I, when I, what I can say to you is that we are not stupid and we are waking up. 
to the fact that the Democratic Party for more than 30 years has promised and promised and promised and has never delivered, specifically something called immigration, immigration reform law. And as I'm sure you know, I presented an immigration reform law called the Dignity Act. (laughs) Dignity. So those people who are in the shadows have not committed a crime. They have politi- They have uh, American kids, and they are contributing with the economy. They could live in dignity, not path to citizenship. The path to citizenship has been a, a trick used by the Democratic Party for many years, and we're waking up to that. That's one aspect. The other one is religion. We are, we have the same values that are entrenched in the Republican Party. God-fearing, law-abiding, low taxes, small government. Leave me alone, I'll pursue my own happiness. And right now, that is under assault, specifically the religious part. You know, Hispanics are very religious, either Catholics or evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And right now, the Democratic Party, you know what they're doing with that. So that's another layer. So it's an accumulation and now with this inflation and with the gas prices, and they and they do have a point of reference. Remember that two years ago, everyone was working more. Everyone was paying less taxes. Everyone was getting bonuses. Everyone, whether you were legal or illegal, you were doing okay economically. Right now, things are not the same. So they're putting all that together, and they're saying, you know what? Maybe it's time to change. Yep. And I am here to tell them, you are right, my friend. It's time to change. But it now it's up to us in the GOP to say, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> we want you here. Vote with us. But we got to give you something. And that's called immigration. A new trend in Republican politics. Latino voters increasingly rejecting the Democratic Party and embracing the GOP. In 2016, 28% of Latino voters voted for Trump. But in 2020, that number went up to 32%. It is a trend that has delighted Republicans and left Democrats very worried. Because you were in the news media for so many years, how do you think the way that uh, Latino voters get their news, is that having an impact? Is, is what, what role is news media as traditional and then also new forms of communication having on the Latino uh, voters? Well, listen, I pay to my rent by doing that. Spanish television, radio television is immensely popular and immensely powerful. And we in the GOP, we have not tapped into it, mm-hmm. period. We have not tapped. And you know how I know it? Because I was there. So I've been telling my GOP leadership, hey, it's time to do something with Univision Telemundo, with the radio, because Hispanics who are working two and three jobs, they get their, they get their info about the rest of the world through radio or television, because you have to understand that most of them maybe not speak English. And even if they were to speak English, they want to go to Spanish television because there is where they see what's happening in their countries of origin. Even if you are the president of the bank and you're Peruvian American and you speak perfect English, you go to Univision because you need to see what's happening in Peru. And that's how we can. That's very... it's, it's, it, I know that because I, I, I interview them. Mm-hmm. So you go from the president of the bank to the guy who cleans the toilets in the bank. Everyone watches and, and, and listens to Spanish television because they are very tied back home. And right. now social media obviously, obviously has, has widened and, and spread or make it, make it bigger, a bigger pool of info coming to those people. But still, it's in the hands of the GOP. 
And I've been telling them, and whomever is listening to me, I want you to understand that bringing the Browns, the GOP, the Hispanics, the Latinos, anywhere you want to call them, is doable and is doable now because we share the same values. We're only waiting to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, the, the the foreign policy question I want to ask is, most political prognosticators uh, believe that the Republicans will uh, win the House of Representatives after the November elections. You sit on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, a lot of people will want to know, what do you see the change in priorities of that House Foreign Affairs Committee under the control of Republicans and with your leadership on that committee? What will be different than what we've seen in the last two years? Well, number one, I promise that we will pay attention to the area, to Latin America, which happens to be our backyard. It's right there. And we have completely abandoned it. And to the Chinese and to the Russians. It's, 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 it's embarrassing. And number two, I promise that I will, I will try to bring freedom and awareness to those countries which has lost it. Cuba, the big Satan. Venezuela, we know about it. Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega just lost, just, I mean, just stole the country away from us. Now, uh, Colombia with President Petro. Chile, that has a leftist president. So we're talking about a barrage, in, in, a, a flood of ideological, uh, of, of socialist ideas penetrating the, the, um, the Western Hemisphere. And, and unfortunately, the United States is the political. Because we're, the problem is that we're so big that sometimes we think that the rest of the world doesn't exist. Yeah. And uh, Latin America is like, well, yeah, it's there. But, but uh, Ronald Reagan was the last guy who said, hey, Nicaragua, be careful with Nicaragua. Look where we're at, at the same position where we, where we were uh, 35 years ago with Reagan, fighting the same guy, Daniel Ortega. So it's our, it's our job. To, to pay attention and to say, no, we're not going to negotiate with you. We're not going to let you. We're not going to buy your products. We're not going to sell your product. You know, it's, 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 it's pay attention. That's the word. Because of COVID, there's been a big movement here in this part of the world to wanting to control more of our precious natural resource and our workforce. And when I say in this part of the world, it's really the hemisphere. And there's been a, a move recently towards something called near sourcing as opposed to outsourcing, where basically the Western Hemisphere would become more solidified as an economic powerhouse moving forward, while also making sure that we control more of our fruits of our labor and our precious natural resource. Is that one of the reasons why we should redouble our efforts to strengthen our relationships throughout Latin America? Of course. You just said it. Look at Central America. The Guatemalans are are dying to bring in our American voice, our American technology, and our American dollars. Look at what's happening in El Salvador. Let's help this guy, Bukele. Uh, Why don't we help uh, Jamate? Why don't we help uh, the the Peruvians? All that Chinese industry should be here with us because these are friendly countries. Everyone wants to deal with the Americans. No one wants to deal with the Russians or with the Chinese. The problem is that we are not letting them or giving them any choice of having, if the Chinese comes with a big big amount of money and say, hey, I'm going to buy your port. And that means that your port is going to work and you're going to get a lot of dough. Hey, who's going to say no? But you don't want to deal with the Chinese. 
But where are the Americans? Well, we don't know where the Americans are. So that, that is, it's, it's, uh, what you're saying is exactly what we need to do. Nearshoring. Bring everything from China to Latin America. Latin America political class is not perfect. Far from it. So that's why one of my plans is why don't we deal directly with the private sector? The private sector American, the private sector Peruvian, Nicaraguan, all these Central American countries. The private sector would love to deal with the green dollars. Of course, don't I know it? I was there and they told me, where are the Americans? Where are the Americans? Because you know, at the end, we are adored. We are loved. We, and I was, I mean, I have so many anecdotes. The Panamanian invasion in 1989 with Noriega, President Bush, sent the Marines. You know, the Panamanian girls would drop and grab them and say, please marry me, just because they were toeheads. Well, so, yeah, there's so many. That was, that was a really uh, interesting time. And you have so much experience having covered it for so many years. Before we wrap, I'm going to sneak in one tiny little question, and that is your first-term member of Congress. And what has surprised you, if anything, about being a member of Congress? Because you've never served in any elected office before. So is there something that being an elected member of Congress that you weren't expecting that surprised you a little bit? That's a great, great question. And you know what's the answer to that? The slowness. So the government is not in a hurry. What? What do you mean? I mean, we got to fix that. Oh, no, no. It's going to take years. Why? I don't get it. Where's the efficiency of the government and the speed? And, and if the private sector, the American private sector, could, be, could in, in, inject some of its uh, uh, rigor, some of its speed, some of efficiency, efficacy, all that into the American government, we would be uh, a miracle. And, and even if we're not, we're still a miracle. So, so yeah, that that is that that's that's the what frustrates me so much because you see it, it's there, let's fix it. But then you have to go through nine hundred and thirty-three bureaucrats for them to see the same thing. And those people have no incentives because they know that on the thirtieth, that check is going to be there. Right. In the private sector where I was at. I needed to bring in the ratings. Otherwise, the check was not going to be on the 30th. <laughs> they were not going to renew my contract, and I was going to lose my job. So I knew that you got to hustle. But if you hustled it, you were number one. And if you were number one, you reaped the fruits of your labor. And I think. I think what we just saw, Justin, shows why your ratings were very good. <laughs> You're on the air. <laughs> exactly. That was awesome. Representative, thank you so much for your service, and thank you for Hello. joining us on our podcast today. It's been an honor to have you. Long live the United States. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So I think passion is not something that is lacking in the representative. What do you think? Not at all. I mean, you can see why she was so good on television. Oh, my gosh. Uh, just a lot of energy and uh, is very passionate about the issues that she cares about the most. So that that's obvious. And you can see why she's uh, been so successful in her early political career. If you look at kind of how she goes at things with that kind of energy— her last comment about how government's slow. She's <laughs> frustrated as a first-time me member of Congress how deliberately lethargic it feels to her as opposed to let's go charge the hill. Right, because I imagine in the news business, you know, she's kind of moving fast every day, chasing those stories, chasing down those interviews, moving quickly, getting things done. 
And then you get to Congress, and it's a completely different pace. Right. It's ponderous. Right. Very ponderous. So right. I, can, I can totally understand now because she hasn't been in the public sector before. This is her first time serving in that type of position. So, you know, talk about Latino politics for a second. You look at the, the map for the midterms. Two states in particular, uh, Nevada and Arizona, are places where over 20% of the vote is going to be Latino. Florida is almost that. In 12 of the most competitive House districts, over 20% of the vote is going to be Hispanic. So you might say that it's becoming the leading edge of swing politics in America. I think that vote is up for grabs, and it's changed over actually a very short period of time from what seemed to be a Democratic reserve where they were already predicting we're going to have a majority like forever because of this this demographic to one where we they don't know anymore and no one knows except it, the swim of cultural values social issues and the economy is really making this a very interesting but very complex puzzle yeah i think for many years uh there was a conventional wisdom was is that his, the larger the hispanic population increased in the united states the worse it was for Republicans. Right. This was conventional wisdom for many years. And the assumption was is that non-white voters were going to continue to gravitate and disproportionate share to the Democratic Party. And really one of the largest stories right now in American politics is how this increasing demographic group is actually moving towards the Republican Party. I just I tweeted about this uh, recently that there was a recent study that was done that looked at census tracts that were Hispanic, and there's been a shift. There was a shift from 2016 to 2020 amongst Hispanic voters and other non-white voters towards Republicans, uh, which is pretty remarkable. So I think she touched on it, and you just mentioned it, that one of the thing, one of the reasons for that is cultural issues. And she mentioned the fact that Hispanics are uh, a faithful community, a faithful constituency, uh, and she, she used the word religious. So I think that that's one thing that's making it difficult that's for the right. Democrats to dominate this this constituency as they had thought that they would. Yeah, if you break it down, it's the Democrats seem to have edge on social issues generally, uh, Republicans on economic issues. One of the swing factors right now for Democrats, the favorite Democrats, is a sense of extremism that there's as perceived in certain elements of the Republican Party. The the wedge issue I think for Republicans is different. It is. Are, have we gone too far in being too woke is a way, way to say that. That also came out of, the, by the way, the New York Times poll and leads to a, a fascinating kind of assessment of what's going to happen, not just in the midterms, but moving forward. Right. And uh, the other thing that I found interesting was kind of just how the role of the House of Representatives may change if the Republicans take control. She's very focused on uh, Latin America, and she named all the foreign leaders that are not uh, necessarily allies of the United States that might be even potentially hostile to the United States. So uh, she seems very focused, and I think that with her position on the Foreign Affairs Committee, if the Republicans do, which most prognosticators think they will take control, uh, I think you're going to see a much more a vocal House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee on issues in Latin America. Here from Ballard Studios with Justin Safey and Adam Goodman. Thanks for listening. One of the biggest issues in America today is political polarization, but you didn't see much of that when Hurricane Ian blew through the state of Florida. What we did see instead was a coming together. The Democratic President of the United States, Joe Biden, and the Republican Governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, not once but many times, pulled together, spoke with each other, decided what the best, most immediate, most impactful response would be, 
So at a time when there's all this talk of polarization and divisiveness, wasn't it refreshing to see, instead of retreating to partisan corners, they united in the middle of the ring? As tragic as Hurricane Ian was and remains, that should make all of us feel just a little bit better. Thanks for listening.